Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 132. It's August 24th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. While the markets are in correction, this is the first time that we've had the S&P 500 closing more than 10% below its high since, I believe, uh, 2011. So that puts us at nearly four years without a correction. Everybody's been asking me, is this the time to buy on the dips? Well, we're going to discuss that in this episode as well as some general information about a correction. I'm also going to talk to you about the direction of gold and what I think is going on with the U.S. dollar. So let's get right into it. And the first thing I want to say is that although this has been an extremely volatile market the last, you know, say two weeks, and in particular the last three or four sessions, don't forget, this market for the last six years has been incredibly resilient. For the last nearly two years, it's been almost historically unprecedented how resilient it was. And just over the last six or seven months, this market has really not budged more than 5%. So although right now, you know, all uh, all heck is breaking loose, it's my opinion that any type of credible rumor that the Federal Reserve is going to intervene, you know, maybe do another QE4 or something like that, that this market will bounce back up in a real hurry. And again, with all the people that are asking me and emailing me about, you know, is this the time to buy in? Is this the time to buy in on the dip? I wouldn't be at all surprised to see this market bounce. I think it might be a head fake. With all the troubles that are going on with the global economy, I, you know, again, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, you know, a 4 to 6% bounce and then everything fall apart again. But I want to stress, if people start to think that the Fed's going to intervene or there's any kind of indication that the government's going to come in and try and prop up our market like we saw them attempt to prop up the Chinese market, well, that could end this correction quickly because there's a huge faith in government there's a lot of people that believe that the stock market and the banks and all these institutions are too big to fail, and so someone's going to come in and prop them up. And that really takes us on to our, our next topic, which is what's going on with this correction. Well, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast any length of time, I don't have to explain that to you, and I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail other than to reiterate what I've been talking about. There's a great deal of fear about a slowdown in the overall uh, global economy, about a potentially increasing threat of a global recession. This is emanating from China. That's the major culprit where, you know, we also see problems with India. India got a new prime minister last year that was supposed to make everything better. That didn't happen. Of course, the other BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, the other countries that are really dominated with export economies, the things that, you know, four or five years ago we heard we're just going to be having exponential growth and we're going to take over the, uh, you know, American dollar as a currency. Well, those markets have all fallen apart. And again, basically it all comes back to that overall fear of a global recession, but it's focused on China. You see, for years we got used to double digit growth in China. Just a few years ago they were growing at 12 to 14 percent. This year, they revised those numbers down to 7%. You know, we'll probably see them be lucky to grow at 4 or 5% this year. That isn't too much higher than the U.S. Whenever you have a major player like China that has cut their growth rate, you know, at least in half, that doesn't mean that you're looking at a worldwide depression, but it does mean that you're looking at a potential recession because of all the overcapacity, all the excess that has been built into the system to provide for that long-term growth. Well, if that growth doesn't occur... You have to have a pullback in prices because you're just not getting the demand that you anticipated. That's why we've seen a collapse in the commodity prices. Think of it this way. You're planning on going out and gaining a whole bunch of weight. For whatever reason, You know your goal is to go from 150 pounds up to 300 pounds. 
Now, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but I'm just using a crazy example here to illustrate a point. So you start eating a lot of food, you start packing on the weight, and in anticipation of that, you go out and you buy some really, you know, big old fat jeans, and you buy a belt that's like, I don't know, 80 inches long. You start gaining weight, you start getting really fat, your waist is ballooning out, but at some point you hit a wall and you never make it to 300 pounds. Let's say you only make it to 250. Well, what do you do? You have to take in those pants and you have to cut the extra length off of that belt because it's not going to fit your waist anymore. Now, sure, you weigh a lot more and your waist is a lot bigger than it was when you were 150 pounds, but you never reached that anticipated goal of weighing 300 pounds. And so you have to cut back. You have an overcapacity in the size of the clothes you bought and in the waistband of the belt that you purchased. So you have to reduce. You have to somehow absorb that overcapacity. That's what's happening in global markets right now. We thought we were going to have a fat China, and we're not. That's spilling over into all the related markets. You know, we're seeing, obviously, boil over into Vietnam and South Korea, Japan, Singapore, everywhere. And it's not limited to Asia. One of the reasons that the Chinese uh, growth is, is slow is because it's, it's not just their internal consumption that slowed down, but it's also their export markets. This last quarter, I believe their exports to Europe were reduced by about 8%. So that says a lot not only about the Asian economy, which is seeing a lot less in exports, but it's also saying something about the perceived recovery in Europe. Despite the fact that the European Union has, has gotten stronger, it's been healthier over the last eight months or so, they're still not exporting as many goods from China as they had in the past. So there's a problem with growth all around the world. That's the big reason that we're seeing the, the pullback and the correction in our market. And it's not only the U.S. market, it's all around the globe. Let's focus back on China. As, as just as recently as June, the Chinese stock market, comp, a composite of their indexes, the Shenzhen and the Shanghai indexes, they were up over 50% year to date as, as just recently as June. Well, as of today, all that has been wiped out. So their markets went up and came down by 50% and, and have made a complete cycle in just eight months of the year. Now, what's even more remarkable than that is that the Chinese government did everything imaginable to intervene and to prop up that stock market. They did it not only by interjecting at least, you know, a trillion dollars, but they also did it with rules and regulations that tried to prevent people from trading. They tried to, to limit or stop new initial public offerings, you know, to put criminal investigations out, to intimidate people for selling short. I mean, they did everything they could from both a legislative standpoint and a, a fiscal and monetary standpoint to prop up that market. The point I want to make here is that it failed. The market has collapsed. That, again, is another reason why I think the markets are so jittery right now, because the, we, everybody's put their full faith in the government that these institutions are too big to fail, and that if there's any kind of a problem, some government, some central bank somewhere is going to come in and intervene. Well, these last few weeks and months in China have played out the fact of what we all know is real reality, and that's that these markets are too large to forever be um, propped up by government and central bank interventions. So if things get bad enough, at some point the markets will fail and no one can save the day. So that's why we're seeing this correction, and I've gotten a lot of questions about what's a correction, what isn't. Uh, just a real quick summary here. 
A change in market direction, a change in an uptrend or a downtrend simply means that the market, you know, is, is what we stated here. It's going in a different direction. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going up or down any particular percent. It just means that if the market had been going up, a downtrend would mean that it's coming down. It doesn't mean that it's coming down 1% or 20%. It just means that the overall market direction for a given period of time has reversed and is moving the, a different direction. So that's what we talk about when we talk about a change in direction or a market uptrend or downtrend. A market correction is a technical term that it's used loosely. A lot of times um, I'll quote Investors Business Daily and they'll talk about a market incorrection or an uptrend under pressure. And really what we're saying there is that the market is changing direction. You know, it had been in an uptrend and now when it moves into a correction, it's, it's changing direction downward. It doesn't necessarily fit the pure definition of what a correction is. And that definition of a correction is at least a 10% drop in the market. And so you take that from the most recent high. So this year, the market, uh, the S&P 500 was up and had an all time high right around 2130. Well, with today's closing price of 1893 on the S&P 500, that puts us in official correction territory because the market has moved down more than 10%. It's right now on the S&P 500 down about 11 point something percent. So that's a correction. A correction is a, a drop of, of 10% or more from the previous market high. Now, when we talk about going into a bear market, a bear market is when you have a collapse from the, from the high of as much as 20% or more. We're getting close to a bear market in the small cap stocks, uh, which is categorized by the Russell 2000. I think that index is off its high by about 15%. That's a real concern because as early as, you know, May or June, the small cap stocks had recovered and had done very well because people were saying that this uh, problems overseas, the problems in Greece, the problems in China, problems that the big multinational companies were having with exports and with the strength of the U.S. dollar, that that was not going to be seen in the smaller U.S.-centric, U.S.-based companies. And the fact that they were having lower input costs because uh, the, the price of oil had come down so much that these smaller to mid-size American-based U.S. companies were going to do very well. Well, that's all fallen apart, and they've come down more so now than the other major indices. So that's a problem. Uh, but in any case, that's just to answer some questions that I received about what's the difference between like a downtrend and a bear market and a correction. When I finish this episode today, I'm going to come back in and sum up where I think a good entry point into the S&P 500 might be based on the knowledge that I have today. Before I do that, though, I want to talk about two other key points, and that's what's happening with gold and what's happening with the U.S. dollar. Let's first talk about gold. Over the last month, gold has done very well. It's risen about 5%, and it's almost a complete inverse of what we've seen with the U.S. dollar, which is down about 5% over the last month. What I want to caution here is to be very careful with gold. And again, I'm not uh, giving you anything other than my opinion. I can never offer advice or recommendations on this podcast. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm telling you what's on my mind. I'm telling you what's driving the decisions and the positions that I make. So as far as gold, I'm not jumping into gold, despite the fact that it, it's had a very good relative strength in these past few weeks. Last week, it showed a lot of strength when it broke out above its 50-day moving average. That's something we hadn't seen it do in, in several months. 
but it is still below its 100-day moving average, um, and it's well below its 200-day moving average. I definitely think we're going to ha- see that it have resistance getting above that 100-day moving average. And the reason for that is that the really the primary reason for going into gold is because you're worried about inflation. And right now, that isn't the problem. Right now, we're suffering from deflation. The collapse in oil prices, the collapse in all commodity prices are potentially going to be bringing the cost of consumer products down, not up. So we're seeing the opposite of inflation. Gold is a store of value. And so you want to go into gold when you're anticipating that prices are going to be rising, not when they're potentially going to be declining. Think of it in terms of real estate. You buy a house because you think at some future date, you're going to be able to sell it at a higher value because the population is, is constantly growing. They're not making any more land. And if people want to own property, they're going to have to pay a higher value for it. And then the cost of everything else is going up, right? The cost of bricks and cement and copper and all the lumber products, those are always rising. So if you buy land today and build a house on it, then you expect in 30 years, if nothing else, if just because of inflation, the value of that house is going to be more in 30 years than what you paid for it. And that would be because to buy a comparable piece of land, a comparable piece of property, and to build a new home on it, it's going to cost more 30 years from now than it does today. Well, imagine that less people are desiring to buy that property, so that means the price is going to come down. And then also imagine that, that the cost of the copper that's in the wiring in that house has come down by 50%. Imagine that the 2 by 4s and the other wood used to construct that home, that those prices have come down 50%. Imagine that labor costs have stagnated. And it doesn't cost any more to hire, you know, roofers and, and drywallers and people like that, general contractors. That those whole labor costs haven't gone up. Well, what's going to happen is, is that in the future, if those prices actually decline because of deflationary pressures or because of overcapacity of products, that you'll be able to buy land and build a home cheaper in the future than you did in the present. And so that's the problem we're seeing right now. That's why the markets are being spooked by this global recession. And although in recent days and recent weeks, people have flocked into gold, they've, they've definitely made it rise, you know, about 5% or more. I think it's going to hit that limiting factor when the real sophisticated investors step in and say, hey, I'm not worried about inflation. So why should I be putting my money in gold when I have other options that pay dividends? The other problem, I think, with the increasing rise in the price of gold or I should say a continued increase in the price of gold, is that because we are seeing a a global slowdown focused or, or centered in Asia, well, that would mean that the largest consumers of gold, that being people in China and people in India and people in those surrounding countries, they've seen a great deal of their fortunes wiped out either because their stock market has imploded or because they don't have the growth in the industries that they anticipated. And so I don't see them having enough money to come in and and buy more gold and drive up the gold price. So lack of inflation and then lack of demand coming from these emerging markets or these Asia-centric markets, which generally are the largest consumers of gold, I don't see that happening. I think that's going to keep the price of gold you know, somewhere below its 100-day moving average. And I think that that lack of consumption in Asia, as far as gold goes, is going to be not only from the retail investor, the average man or woman on the street in China is going to have less money to buy gold, but so are their central banks. The Chinese government in the last you know, two months have, has gone out and spent at least a trillion dollars trying to prop up their stock market, and they failed at that. 
And that's even after they devalued their currency. So I just don't see the Chinese Central Bank or the, the People's Bank of, of China having the, the money and the currency available to go in and shore up their gold reserves. Remember, they're devaluating their currency. They're not trying to make it worth more. They're not trying to back it up with a real hard asset like gold. They're trying to devaluate their currency. So if anything, I think they'd be selling gold as opposed to buying it. So while short-term gold has been a safe haven, I don't see that as lasting. And, and again, this is just my opinion. And now that takes us on to what's happening with the U.S. dollar. For the most part, as gold has gone up, the dollar has come down. That's not unusual. That's generally what you would think would happen, although those two things don't always correlate. And that lack of correlation when that happens, that's the anomaly we're looking for. But in this case, they are correlating. And you're seeing a lot of people right now with, with being worried that the U.S. dollar is going to collapse or it's losing its status as a safe haven. You're seeing some people say that. These are basically the same naysayers that for years have been telling us that the Russian ruble and the Chinese RMB were going to become, you know, the global reserve currencies or, or we were going to have some type of, of OPEC petroleum dollars. Well, that kind of thinking has totally collapsed for the time being. So I would ignore the naysayers that say the U.S. dollar is going to fall apart. Here's what I think is happening. And I say this with full disclosure. I remain heavily overweighted in the U.S. dollar. I have approximately, uh, let's just say, 50% of my holdings invested in the U.S. dollar through an exchange-traded fund. Now, I've seen a decline coming in the U.S. dollar. And, I, and I'll admit here that it has been more drastic than I anticipated. We saw that around the middle of August, the U.S. dollar index broke below its 10-day moving average. That's been a pretty good level of support for the dollar. It later went on to bounce off its 50-day moving average, but then met resistance trying to get back above the 10-day moving average right around August 18th, which is only about four days ago. I believe that's last Wednesday. And it's been downhill ever since. That's really has been the downfall of the U.S. dollar because once it hit resistance and couldn't get above that 10-day moving average, it went on to drop below its 100-day moving average, its 50-day moving average. Then on Friday, it dropped below its 200-day moving average, and it fell further today. So am I crazy? Why am I continuing to be long, and why do I continue to hold the U.S. dollar? Well, here's my thought process. Just as quickly as the dollar is falling apart, I think it has the potential to bounce back up and I didn't want to sell it when it broke that 50-day moving average to turn around and miss it bouncing back up. And here's my rationale on this. The United States government isn't going bankrupt. And as bad as a global recession may be, or as bad as uh, what we're seeing across all the stock markets, uh, the fact that, you know, our markets are in a correction right now, they're still better than almost any other market out there. The U.S. economy while not growing strongly, it is still the best house in a bad neighborhood, which is why I've talked about being in the dollar to begin with. Our real GDP growth in the U.S. is coming in at a really miserable and paltry like 2.3%. But when you compare that to the rest of the world, that's still a really good number. Japan is in recession. Right now, they have zero to negative growth in their GDP. And that's despite the fact that they've had massive quantities of quantitative easing, that they've devaluated their currency, that they're making uh, more profits because energy costs have come down and they're a major energy importer. When we look over to Europe for the second quarter of 2014, the European Union had only 0.3% growth in their GDP. That's basically a rounding error and you can pretty much say that they 
are flat as well. And that's actually declining too because the, the previous quarter, I believe they had 0.4% growth. That's dropped down to 03 Again, that's bad news because we have the European Central Bank pumping lots of quantitative easing into that economy. They've been benefiting from lower oil prices and a significantly lower euro. And with all that happening, they still can't grow their economy. They're teetering on dropping back into recession. The problems in, in Europe remain. Southern Europe really has a lot of problems, similar to the problems that we're seeing in Japan in terms of, of bad demographics and uh, unfavorable government spending and debt. Uh, at least the Japanese are major exporters. And so that, that whole Southern European country is going to be a big drag on the European Union. And then the Northern countries in Europe, they're suffering from the fact that oil prices are depressed. And most of those countries up in the Scandinavian and, and a North Atlantic area, they derive a lot of their revenues from the sale of oil. So Southern Europe is in, in perpetual downward death spiral. Northern Europe is in a, a short-term fix because of the lower commodity prices. And so that really leaves you with just Germany and France. And, and Germany is, is the only real stellar, strong economy in Europe. Well, don't think that the problems in, in Asia are not going to affect them. Germany is a major powerhouse exporter. I mean, they're really just behind China in being the factory to the world. Something like 70% of Germany's GDP comes from exports. In the United States, we only get about 15% of our GDP from exporting. So you can see if there's a global slowdown, that's going to be a big deal to the German economy, which again is really that only strong guy in Europe. And then when you factor in the slowdown in China, Germany's exporting about maybe 10% of its overall exports into China. So again, that's a big problem. As a comparison, look what's happened to Apple stock. They've exported a great deal of their um, iPhone 6s. A lot of the growth of their iPhone 6 sales in the last 18 months have come from China. Well, with Chinese growth you know, down in the toilet right now, the price of Apple stock in the last three months have come down about 22%. So you can carry over and apply that same thing to, to the economy of Germany. The German stock market reached its highs in around April. And since then, it's down something like, I don't know, 17, 20%. So very similar comparison to Apple stock. They're both major exporters to China. So let's get back to the U.S. dollar. The reason I'm talking so much about the economy in Europe and the economy in Germany is that over the past five to ten trading sessions, the reason we've seen the U.S. dollar devaluate and, and lose about five percent or so hasn't been because investors are worried about the, the economy in the United States. And it hasn't been because the U.S. dollar has lost its safe haven status. In fact, the reason the dollar has come down is exactly because the U.S. economy is still where people run to when there's an emergency. You see, when people started fearing about a slowdown in the global economy, and particularly in China, you go back to June, our 10-year Treasury yield was up at almost 2.5%. That was driving the strength of the U.S. dollar. Well, that's been coming down, and then in the last 10 trading sessions or so, the yields on the Treasury have dropped down from about two and a quarter all the way down to about 2%. The lower Treasury yields correspond to a weaker U.S. dollar only because the return on investment is lower. But remember, the yield on our Treasuries is not lower because people are afraid of a government default or because they're worried about the U.S. economy. It's, it's the exact opposite. 
people are flocking into United States uh, guaranteed securities like the 10-year treasury. And as a result of that, whenever you have an increase in demand, more people wanting to buy U.S. treasuries, whenever there's more demand and not uh, a growing supply, what happens? The price goes up. And when, it, when we're dealing with bonds, the price and the yield are inverted. So as the price of our treasuries go up, the yields come down. So our yields are coming down, not because our, our money is actually worth less, but it's actually because we're a secure country and people are flocking to put their assets in the United States. So temporarily, that's causing our yields to come down. Those decrease in yields have had a decrease in the value of the U.S. dollar. But what I want to stress here is, is that if you look at the U.S. dollar against all other currencies in about the last 10 trading sessions, the U.S. dollar has been appreciating against all the global currencies except for two. Those two currencies are the Japanese yen and the European Central Bank euro. So all the losses that we've seen in the dollar have come from the appreciation in the yen and in the euro. Now, based on the discussion that I just had with you, about the fact that Japan is in recession and Europe is on the verge of recession and that the only way that those countries have had the meager uh, breath of life and a little bit of growth that they've had in the last six months has come from the fact that their currencies were devaluated and energy costs were low. Well, now the sheer fact that their currencies have risen five or six percent in the last couple of weeks, that's going to further drag down their economy. That's going to result in less growth, less exports. It's going to result in those countries being less competitive. And so what are they going to do? They have no other alternative but to further devaluate their currencies and print more money. You know, basically have more quantitative easing from the Bank of Japan and from the European Central Bank. And so if nothing else, that's going to stabilize and get us back U.S. dollar somewhere around its 100-day moving average. So that's why when I looked at the charts, I didn't immediately sell when it broke that 200-day key support level. Something is very important to understand here. When I talk about swing trading, I often just spend time discussing the actual charts and, and the, what we would call the technical features of it. That's because those are the most dynamic and those are the things that are constantly changing. But I don't just look at charts. I don't just look at moving averages. I also look at fundamentals. And whenever I see the fundamentals out of whack with the charts, that's when I see an anomaly. And so that's when I look for an opportunity. Right now, if I didn't own the U.S. dollar, I would be purchasing it. Because I think this recent pullback is only temporary because the strength of the U.S. dollar is supported by the fundamentals. And that's regardless of whether the Federal Reserve raises interest rates in September or in December. Um, guys, I didn't talk about that, but a lot of the weakness in the U.S. dollar since June has been because people don't think that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates right now. But they're only talking about raising rates 25 basis points. That's irrelevant, and that's also just affecting the overnight lending rate between member banks. Remember, as bad as our interest rates are now, as much as they've been depressed, as much as they've come down in the last two months, they're still right around 2% yield for a 10-year treasury. We'll compare that with other nations. Canada's paying 1.26%. Germany's paying 0.59%. Great Britain's paying one8 Switzerland is actually paying a negative 025 because they're trying to weaken the strength of their currency. 
because that truly is a safe haven place that that many people are flocking to to avoid the problems in the in the uh, in the euro. So I believe the fundamentals are there to support getting the U.S. dollar back to its 100-day moving average. Although we've definitely seen a pullback in this last uh, month for sure, in the last two weeks in particular in the U.S. dollar, my overall heavy-weighted position is only down about 2.5%. So that's not the end of the world to me. And the last thing I'll say about the U.S. dollar, and we'll wrap up this episode, is that I also think that the strength that we're seeing in the yen and in the euro is really what we would call a short squeeze. That's where speculators that had short positions in the euro and in the yen, they knew that the dollar was increasing in strength against those other currencies, so they were selling the euro and the yen short. They were betting against it. Well, in these last few trading sessions, as we've seen the value of the euro and the yen rise, that caught these short sellers by surprise. That's where we get the short squeeze. They have to go into the marketplace and buy those currencies now to backfill their positions in order to close out their accounts. So I think that is also magnifying the rise in those two currencies, and that's going to be short-lived as soon as those short positions are closed out. And let me relate this back to gold. I think perhaps the same argument can be made there with gold. Gold has been declining since 2011 with a a long-term global secular downtrend. It broke key support at $1,100 an ounce. It struggled for many weeks and months to get above that, even with the problems going on early on in China and with drama happening in Greece. Gold just couldn't get above $1,100. Now with this most recent global meltdown, it did break above that. But as I stated before, I think it's going to get stuck at its 100-day moving average, and you're going to see gold drop back down below $1,100 an ounce. Again, this is just my opinion, but it is based on fundamentals. Ask yourself this question. If all commodity groups are collapsing, how can gold be rising? Because gold is only a commodity. Gold is a piece of real estate that you can put in your pocket. If copper and lumber and iron ore and cement and all the other commodities are in a total price free fall, I don't see how gold can be rising at the same time that they're all declining. And to relate back how this actually works in the producer economy. Just last week, it was announced that a new gold mine is opening in Canada. The uh, total investment price is $2 billion. Now, the financiers and the, the, the investors that were backing that gold mine that were willing to put $2 billion on the line, people were asking them, well, why are you doing that when we're seeing a depressed gold market when you know prices have collapsed since 2011 and gold can't get above $1,100 an ounce and all these commodity prices are collapsing? Why would you invest $2 billion in a new gold mine? And and their answer was the reason that they justified and rationalized this $2 billion investment, because when they start producing gold, their full-in cost for the production of an ounce of gold will be about $800. So with gold hovering around $1,100 an ounce, or even if gold dropped down to $900 an ounce, this mine would still be extremely profitable because they can pull it out of the ground at $800 an ounce. Again, that's why we're seeing the collapse of all commodity prices. With energy costs coming down so astronomically, that makes the price of all other commodities less expensive. How do you make a synthetic fertilizer? You make them out of petroleum products. How do you mine minerals and um, and metals, and then how do you refine them? Well, you use vast amounts of energy to do that. And so when energy prices come down, 
the cost of your metals and your minerals go down. That's why we're in a deflationary cycle. That's why I think gold is going to get capped off somewhere at around its 100-day moving average. And that's why I think the U.S. dollar is likely in the near future to get back to its 100-day moving average and then go on to make new highs from there as we see this global recession intensify. Particularly if this collapse in commodity prices and this lack of demand for exports causes a lot of large companies and even possibly countries to default. If you don't think that can happen, just go back to the Asian currency crisis that we had in 1998. I think that's a very likely scenario, but I will re-emphasize what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. If the Federal Reserve comes in, and if there are credible rumors that the Federal Reserve will come back in with intervention and start the fourth round of quantitative easing, then all bets are off. That would collapse the U.S. dollar, and that would probably very rapidly pull us out of this correction that we're in in the stock market. I would personally be surprised if that happens, at least at this stage of the game. Because real estate prices are remaining high and um, the federal bank members' balance sheets have been beefed back up. And it's my opinion that the Federal Reserve really doesn't care about the stock market. That just is collateral damage to them. Their main emphasis is in maintaining the stability of the banking system. And the banking system right now is pretty strong. Now, again, that could change if we see a lot of defaults happening with the exporting countries and the commodity-driven companies. So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. And then as a final note to answer the question that I keep getting about, you know, is this a time to buy the dips? Three months ago, back at the end of May, I said that I thought a uh, a very good value for the S&P 500 would be at the level of 1880. Well, we're pretty much there now. But now that we have new information and we see the real reality of this Chinese meltdown, my opinion is changing. And that's important about being an investor, particularly being a swing trader. You change your opinion based on the changing market conditions. Back when I said that the market would be a good value at 1880, it was, it was trading at about 2123. The reason now that I would be hesitant to buy in at 1880 is that I think that it is very likely that we could see a 15 or a 20% correction. Remember, the last time we almost had a 10% correction, it's the last time in, in the past four years, that occurred in mid-October just 10 months ago. The markets dropped down something like 9.6%, just, just barely coming close to a 10% correction. What drove that market panic? What caused that nearly 10% drop in the markets? Well, it was the scare of Ebola. Think back. That's when the first case of Ebola showed up. People were worried that it was going to have an impact on global trade, that the airline uh, stocks were going to get hammered because people wouldn't be able to travel, because parts of Africa and maybe Southern Europe would be uh, shut off from, from traveling. That little bit of panic was enough to spook the markets and drop them about 10%. Well, right now, we have a real full-fledged fear of a global recession and defaults about to happen. And so I think that's more drastic than one or two cases of Ebola popping up. And so based on that line of thinking, I would expect that we would see at least a 15 or 20% pullback. That would put the S&P somewhere in a range of around 1810 or 1705. So for now, I don't plan to buy in at 1880. I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm going to see if we get closer down to that 1800 level. And I'm going to see how these problems with the global economy develop. Call me overcautious, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. Thanks for joining me. As always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.